and again. How are you? Good to see your smiling faces. And uh, is it still raining out? No, no, good, 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 good. So good to hear that. Um, uh, it's relatively dry for you and making your way to um, hanging out with God's people uh, a little bit easier and eliminating some of those excuses that we might conjure. It's like, oh, it's wet. It could be dangerous. My tires need to be changed. And um, I'm really not at my best worship when it's gloomy out. I need full sunshine, right? You know, the kind of tricks that our minds play on us. So, uh, but it's good to see all of your faces this morning. Um, it's also good to be with uh, about 18 or 20 of our uh, married couples this weekend. Um, I narrowly escaped uh, for your benefit. Left this morning about 7.45 to make sure we could get back here. I also see a, a couple of other couples that were there uh, with us. If you're looking around and wondering where the rest of your family is, um, that's where they are, either in route back from Dalton or Chatsworth or uh, still, in, um, still in session there. But I'm pretty sure everything is wrapped up at this point. So I have missed you all greatly. Um, as you know, uh, probably haven't had a chance to to um, break bread with you, or at least in this way, probably the last uh, maybe six weeks or so between personal vacations and leadership retreats and different things like that. So uh, it's good to be back uh, in, the, uh, in the seat this morning or uh, behind the, the podium or sacred desk, um, as we call it in some circles. Um, but let's, uh, let's go before the Lord and uh, ask for his help, and, uh, and then let's see what he has to say to us, shall we? Father, in the name of Jesus, we come this morning, we thank you and we praise you for every single solitary um, day that you give us, every moment, Lord God. We thank you, Lord God, for just kind of the, the mercies that are new every single morning. And uh, we beg, oh God, that your mercies that are specific to this day, Lord God, would clothe us, drape our hearts and minds, and make us ready to hear from you. But Lord God, I also ask that that same mercy, oh God, would, would saturate my heart, that I would be yielded to you so that the things that I talk about are actually from you and are actually of you and are accurate, Lord God, presentations of your word and a clear communication of your heart. I pray, oh God, that you would uh, completely move me out of the way, use me to whatever extent you see fit. Lord God, I pray that you would filter out anything in my character or life that might be, Lord God, contraindicative to your word, and that, Lord God, that you would also safeguard our hearts collectively for any from any distractions, uh, Lord God, that would cause us not to hear from you clearly. I pray, O oh God, that you would illuminate your word for us, that um, not only would you be glorified and, Lord God, we would be built up as your people, but also our appreciation for your, Lord God, for your word, for this book as your word, Lord God, would be increased as it speaks into our life, um, Lord God, as only you can cause it to do. Um, we pray, O oh God, that um, regardless of how much we think we may have mastered the topic that's going to be covered today, that our hearts will humbly remain open for refinement. Um, and Lord God, that as we hear your word, that we would um, come close to it, see it as being for us and not for someone else who's not here, that we wouldn't waste our time looking left or right, wondering if this other person who we think really needs to hear this, uh, Lord God, is going to show up or not, but that we would ingest it fully, Lord God, as your medicine for us. Lord God, this we ask and pray in the matchless and holy name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. 
Well, this morning, I, I want to really quickly, because this is going to be the seventh installment on our James series, uh, Real Faith. And so I want to give us a, just kind of a brief walk down memory lane to go through some of the other uh, messages that we've talked about uh, during this time. Now, if you remember, we started out talking about something that was a little bit counterintuitive, right? Uh, James uh, told us that we should count it all joy when we encounter diverse or various trials. And we all said, well, how can we possibly count that as joy? And as James uh, continued his teaching and his conversation around how we should do that, we began to learn a little bit more about how it is that the Lord can call us to, to in a very counterintuitive way, counterintuitive to the way maybe our world trains us to feel or the way that our flesh would allow us to feel, we found out that by turning on my faith or, or the work that's happening in my faith can allow me to count trials and tribulations as being an actual reason uh, uh, for rejoicing. But not only that, but we also learned that the reason that we rejoice is not because we're some kind of masochist that enjoy pain and challenges and, 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 and struggle in our life, but what we rejoice in is the outcome that the Lord is producing. James told us that when we're encountering these various challenges in life, that the Lord is producing uh, a steadfastness. He is testing our faith and in the process of testing and verifying and also reproving and refining our faith, he is giving us a kind of faith that can endure under a variety of different circumstances. In other words, he is adding more mileage or adding more muscle to our faith and making it more steadfast and consistent. I don't think there's anybody in the room looking back at me, regardless of your closeness to the gospel or your, your, your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, who wouldn't want to have a more robust faith. And so James tells us that the trying of our faith is a reason to rejoice because it produces a more steadfast faith, a steadfastness in life. And we want that. So that was one of our first messages. We were also told, not only in this process of building steadfastness of faith, that we should grow to be a people who are not tossed to and fro by every wind uh, that comes around. So you know what happens when a wave is tossed by the wind. It is something that is moved by the external circumstances. And so when a person is growing in steadfastness, they are not going to be like a wave that is always moved by the, the, by the gestures of their external circumstances. I would love to be, and I think many of you would love to be, that kind of believer, that kind of person, that my external circumstances aren't constantly shifting my mood and my disposition. And this is what James tells us will happen as we are growing in steadfastness. But James also tells us that in later messages that you heard, maybe message number two or message number three, that sometimes we will find ourselves on a roller coaster. Remember, the Bible told us that both the individual who is being exalted, the lowly individual that is going up the socioeconomic ladder, as well as the person who's already at the top and coming down somewhat of a roller coaster life, should also rejoice in both of those conditions. Why? Because they would have a steadfastness of faith. And so James gave us instruction on how to have an even keel, even during those kinds of circumstances. James went on to say not only to, to, to avoid being like a, a wave tossed to and fro or a person whose mood shifts de depending on what side of the roller coaster they're on, up or down, but it also told us through uh, uh, when Travis came and preached to us that when we find ourselves being tempted, that is invited into sin, that steadfastness of faith would safeguard our hearts and we wouldn't be challenged to say, God, you're the one doing this to me, but that we would rest blame squarely where it belongs, that we would recognize that if we are tempted, it is because there is something inside of each one of us that actually lures us in a particular direction. And if Satan is providing the opportunity, he isn't the one that causes the sin, but it is indeed our own appetite. And only steadfastness of faith could inform us of that reality. 
so that when we are met with temptation, when we are met with trial, regardless of its form or fashion, that we don't find ourselves being shifted. Because what happens when you encounter a problem and you improperly diagnose and you place the blame in the wrong place? You can't arrive at the right solution, right? So steadfastness of faith is crucial to even solving problems of faith that we will face in this life. But also, we went on in our messages to, to not only learn to, to, to avoid blaming God for temptation, but also when we find uh, external circumstances that might impact the way we handle our emotions. That is, I should be uh, uh, quick to listen and slow to speak, that I should but not be so fast to get angry in the way that I treat others. But we all know that life can throw us curveballs, throw us circumstances that might not challenge my perspective and view of God, but it might challenge my perspective of my fellow man, and I might be very quick to fly off the handle at those whom I even love more closely. How do I avoid that? Through actually steadfastness of faith. All of these trials and challenges are all part of this grand design that God has to make us a more steadfast people, not just stoics, but more steadfast people regardless of circumstances. We even heard more messages as the Lord spoke through uh, Brother Bill and told us how a true steadfastness of faith will connect the dots between what we're hearing from the pulpit and what we're doing in practice, that a true steadfastness of faith would not allow us to just load up on messages, but it would also move us to be a people who actually execute on what God is doing and saying in his word, and that we wouldn't be a people who just always thirst for more knowledge, but we become a person who thirsts for more Christ-likeness. So you remember that message, if not, download it on the podcast. But it is only a steadfastness of faith that will help us thread that needle and to connect those principles together. It seemed as if James is just kind of randomly all over the dartboard with these different scenarios. But as you can see, James is quite the master in really just kind of showing us how steadfastness of faith runs through the entire tapestry of life. And regardless of how the panels might be changing in their shape and in their, and in their type, that steadfastness of faith is just a crucial, not just attitude, but a crucial attribute that must be developed, and it is primarily developed through being challenged. We went on to hear even more messages that a steadfastness of faith also shows up in the way that we practice true religion. That was the last message you heard on the subject, right? Those who say that they have true religion, that they're true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, but yet have no affection for uh, the orphan or the widows or those that are marginalized, have no heart for the same folks that God has a heart for. That you can't say that you've got authentic faith, real religion, unless you are doing those things. And so, once again, uh, James, even though he has this just quite a, a, a gumbo, if you will, or just this what looks like a mismatch of scenarios, all of them are tied together by the need to develop and to exhibit a certain steadfastness of faith. Well, when we arrive at uh, James chapter 2, we are still on that same thought trajectory, that a certain steadfastness of faith will cause us to live life in a very certain way. So what is this way or this particular scenario that James throws at us this week that we need to give attention to and, 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 and understand whether or not our, our, we can both understand whether or not our faith is growing in steadfastness or we are growing in steadfastness, or we can clearly see where we 
need to improve in our steadfastness. He gives us this scenario that if you listen to Jalen Reed, listen to Jalen Reed, if you heard him clearly, the scenario is that there is a, a, an assembly. There's a Sunday morning experience. One person walks in wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and they're treated a certain way, given a front row seat or allowed to sit in a great place. And then someone who comes in with shabby clothing, who obviously doesn't necessarily look like they're about much from a socioeconomic standpoint, and that person is treated differently. And so James takes that local, very limited, and very narrow scenario that many of us say, well, I'll never do that. And he begins to paint a much larger picture of a much greater theological problem that lives underneath our steadfastness of faith. So you may not be a person today who would ever treat someone differently based on how they're dressed in church, but don't get trapped by saying because you've never done one of James's specific scenarios that this message isn't for you. It's simply not true. James is a master of taking us from the practical to the principle and drawing a straight line there and then immediately drawing out a larger theological issue that all of us needs to pay attention to. And so let's take a, a close look at, at some of James words, but understand it under this umbrella. Here's where we're going. If James wants us to, to be cautious about the way we treat one another, but not just one another in general, he outlines a very specific scenario. He says that we should not show bias toward those who look a certain way or who we assume are a certain way. There's a certain bias attitude that is outlined in James chapter 2 around how people are treated differently based on our assumption of how much money they have. That's just one manifestation of bias or one manifestation of, uh, of the issue that might be residing in our faith. And so uh, I'd like for us to, to understand everything that we talk about today under this particular guise or under this particular umbrella that an unwavering faith in Christ is the only way to live an unprejudiced life. I'll say it again, an unwavering faith, that is a steadfast faith in Christ, is the only way to live an unprejudiced life. Now, some of you may be saying, well, Pastor Rod, no, it's not that deep, not that deep. Really annihilating prejudice in your life isn't so much a function of religion. It's about expanding your, your, um, you know, your window pane of life. It's about having a variety of different experiences. I grew up in a military family, and I lived in Honolulu, and then I moved to Pensacola, and then I went to San Antonio, and I, moved in, I lived in the Northeast, and then I lived in Germany. And I'm not a racist by any straight, uh, shade of the imagination. And you might not be, but I'm going to be honest with you, the Bible makes it clear that increased exposure and experiences in life still don't expose us and allow us to have experience in every category of life. There are going to be biases and prejudices in every one of us, in every one of our lives. And racism may not be the immediate manifestation or classism may not be the immediate manifestation of your and my particular prejudice or bias, but we all have them. Why? Because bias or prejudice is built off of pride. That is an improper view of one's own self and value in contrast to others. Pride is a is a part of the fall. When we sinned against God, our view of who God is, ourself and others, was distorted. Hear me clearly. When we sin, when we were disconnected from fellowship with God, when we sin, something happened in our hearts, a communicable disease passed down from Adam. When sin ravaged mankind, our ability to see God clearly, see ourselves clearly, and therefore to treat others properly was damaged. 
So even if you're doing a good job, you might be the vice president of human resources and the steward of diversity and inclusion at your respective organizations. And I guarantee you that there is bias and prejudice living in your heart. You may have lived on the West Coast and on the East Coast, traveled the world and had all kinds of experiences playing soccer and all kinds of different experiences that get you this multi-layered exposure. Because I'm telling you this, bias is not an exposure or a social problem. It is indeed a sin problem. I'll say it again. Prejudice and bias is a sin problem and it is not a social problem and it cannot be solved by more experiences. Why? Fundamentally speaking, we shape our value systems and our ideals of other people based on our foremost experiences with or without them. Many of our biases emanate from even having had a negative experience with something or someone. I'll give you a perfect example. Good friend of mine by the name of Mark Johnson, a grown man, 40 plus years of age, to this day will not order any drinks that have ice in them. Do you know why? When he was a little boy, he sucked up a piece of ice through his straw and he choked. And here he is, 47 years of age, and he will not order drinks with ice. Why? Because he has developed a prejudice and a bias based on a very early negative experience with it. Now, many of you and I, we laugh at Mark, but many of us may also have similar experiences. We had a negative impact in an early formative, in our early formative years, and it shaped our understanding or it shaped our ideas of that particular thing. And it may not even be people. But Chess, guess what? If we can develop a prejudice against ice, if we can develop a bias against ice, believe me, you can develop one against certain types and kinds of people. We are never exempt from this. And so it is a part of the brokenness of our heart. But you understand that because God is omniscient, that he knows all things, and we do not know all things, the moment that we have an experience and we derive our knowledge and our understanding of people through those experiences, those experiences as genuine and as authentic and real as they might be are still limited. That's why only faith, that's why only faith can fully fix prejudice and bias. And again, prejudice and bias don't just come in the form of racism. I, wanna, I, wanna, I want us to hear this message through that lens if you want to, if you need to, but that's not the only conversation when it comes to bias. There are many times in life where uh, perhaps in your professional life, maybe you were doing something and someone took issue with you because they weren't accustomed to it being done that way. That's manifestation of a bias. Or maybe you're the person who got angry with someone else. Maybe you've gotten angry with your spouse whom you love dearly because you derived or developed a prejudice based on your upbringing that in my household, this is the way we always did it. And the way you are accustomed to all of a sudden becomes analogous to the way you're supposed to do something. Does that make sense? Bias lives in the human heart, not as a social issue, but as a sin issue. And so James is simply alerting us to how it shows up within the fabric of our relationships with people from different classes and walks of life. And we're going to talk about that, but I also want us to understand the larger picture, just in case you felt inclined to go to sleep. Because we were talking about someone showed up at church wearing a gold ring and someone else showed up wearing shabby clothing. You was like, oh, that's not my issue. Wake me up when you talk about bill payment, paying off student loans. Or wake me up when you want to talk about Colin Kaepernick and Nike. Wake me up when you want to start talking about uh, what we're going to do about this current president. Wake me up when you talk about that. No, this is for us collectively, shall we? So 
Let's open the lid on this really quickly. Um, James chapter 2, beginning with verses 1 through 4. Let's slow walk it. It says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes comes into your assembly, and a man wearing shabby clothes also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over here or you sit at my feet, have you not then made distinctions amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now remember this, James' first audience is a Jewish audience. He makes that clear in the opening words of chapter 1. To refer to them as, Jew, as, as uh, judges with evil intent would have wronged a lot of bells in their minds because they would have thought back to the book of Deuteronomy when they were cautioned about being judges who could not show impartiality and would have given favoritism or made themselves available to bribes by those who may have had money. And God cautions them about not being judges who, who had evil intents and evil thoughts. So this vocabulary is James not just throwing jabs, but he's literally throwing uppercuts when it comes to this issue of how you treat others within the local congregation. He's reaching way back to their theological history from the book of Deuteronomy. When it comes to our faith, here's why this is a faith issue. James makes it clear here in verses 1 through 4 that our faith shapes how we see people. Notice how James says, before he gets into the issue of treating the guy with the shabby clothes versus the guy with the nice clothes differently, he says, do not hold your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in an in a, in a, in a inconsistent way. Don't show partiality in the way that you hold the faith. So showing bias, prejudice, and partiality is not a social issue. It is a faith issue. James makes that clear. Well, what is the faith issue? You see, faith shapes the way we see, uh, the way we see other people. How does it do that? You see, my faith in Christ begins to radically modify how I value human life, whether it be my own or even that of others. The more intense my faith in Christ, the deeper and richer value that I have for other life because Jesus' death on the cross is one of the greatest declarations of human value you've ever seen. It is literally God entering his pockets and saying to humanity, here's how much it costs to fix one of you who might be broken. How many of us have taken our children into a market or a place with maybe porcelain or other breakables and our child gets loose and run? And the first thing in our mind is not that our child might hurt himself, but that they might knock down one of these little glossy figurines and we have to pay for it. We are vastly familiar with what it costs to, to fix and replace broken stuff. And so you and I are people who have been broken and damaged by sin. And then God says, here's how much it costs to fix one of you. It costs the blood of my son, Jesus Christ. And so for all of those who place faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, it radically begins to reshape my faith in how much people cost and how much they are valued. And it has nothing to do with how much they are wearing or what they're wearing when they walk into the worship venue. And so... Faith, but the faith does something else. Uh, remember James's words to us back in James uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 9, when he, when he asked us to let the, bro, the, the brother who is of low, uh, uh, low esteem or, or, or of low, uh, the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich brother in his humiliation. In other words, James captures everybody in the room. 
He says, whether you're rich or whether you're poor or find yourself somewhere in between, you should exalt in what God is doing in your life. And we talked about it during that message. You and I did. We talked about that regardless of where you are on that spectrum, rich or poor, the Lord immediately cautions our hearts to be reminded of the brevity and the frailty of life and that overall dependency that we have on him to, to protect life, Right? So when, we, when our faith informs us of the brevity and the frailty of life, it constantly allows us to see life through the lens or at least wear other people's shoes. Do you get that? Trials is a great opportunity. That tr- trials, I'll say it this way. Trials make us try on other people's shoes for the sake of the faith and not just for fashion. Let me give you an example. Um, the other day I was at home. And um, I heard the garbage truck coming, and I realized that the, and the trash had not been taken out, rolled down to the street. I, wasn't, I didn't have on shoes, and I ran down, and I saw a pair of my son's shoes. And I was like, ah, we're getting around the same size. Let me put on his shoes and just take this garbage out. What's, now, what's interesting about this is that the pair of shoes that he has, are, there are some Nike retros that they brought back forward, the Horachis, that I had when I was about 19 or 20. And that was the last time that I ever put on a pair of those. So I had a general concept of how those shoes should feel. I put on his shoes, and within 1.1 second, I grew to understand something about my son that I cannot even articulate in words. When you put on someone else's shoes, it's, it's like, what is this? Whether it's weird or whether it's wonderful, whatever it is, you immediately, as you walk in their shoes, this isn't just a metaphor. As if you've ever put on someone else's shoes, the shoes that they've had for a while, and you walk in them, you, you feel their weight distribution. You, you feel and feel something about how they walk and, and where they put pressure and what they go through. It is incredible when you put on someone else's shoes. Well, guess what? Trials, while they are temporary, put us in a position where we put on other people's shoes. And that's why trials are so valuable and why we can rejoice in them because when I have a challenge in life of being the poor guy or the rich guy, if I've suffered need or if I've had much, I'm being allowed to try on other shoes. And as I try on other shoes, that should do something to my faith that allows me to more beautifully, wonderfully, and mercifully share the gospel, share the love of Christ, or to show the love of God to that person because I know something about what it means to wear your shoes. Now, Jesus himself has actually mastered this in Philippians chapter 3 verses, uh, excuse me, Philippians chapter 2 verses 3 through 8. We all know the story of Jesus who being in the form of God thought it not right to be equal to God, uh, but also came in among us and he put on human flesh, took on the form of a servant. He did what? He tried on our shoes. He walked the same paths that we do. He suffered loss of his best friend Lazarus. He suffered treachery from one of his disciples, Judas. He suffered hunger and the actual temptation of Satan uh, for 40 days on the precipice of him walking into ministry. He felt, he walked in our shoes. He knows what loneliness is like as he hung on the cross and he cried out, my God, my God, talking to the Father, why does it feel like you have forsaken me? And so the weight of the world, literally, have you ever felt like you were overwhelmed and you couldn't go forward because your to-do list was bigger than any energy that you had left and there were still other things crying out for your attention? Well, Jesus Christ has felt that too. The weight of the world resting upon his shoulders as he hangs on the cross, wearing our shoes. 
And so do you now see why wearing other shoes, the way we walk through this life and we go through certain seasons of challenges, we can rejoice in how a steadfastness of faith, which informs our heart, Lord, now I understand why poor people need mercy. Now I understand why the rich man needs mercy. Now I understand why those who are hungry need mercy. And so the Lord, uh, you know, he's not going to walk us through every single person's shoes on the planet. Therefore, only faith can inform our hearts of how to treat others. Because we won't get a chance to wear everybody's shoes. And it's not like we are only qualified to share love and show Christ to those who we've had identical experiences with. But there's something about the curriculum of God that, 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 that dials our heart in to show mercy based on the shoes that we've gotten a chance to wear. And then to regularly be reminded that Jesus Christ has also worn our shoes. So just to, just to frame this point up finally, trials make us try on other people's shoes for the sake of the faith and not for any other form or fashion. And so when we see that brother or that sister who looks like they've got it all together or like they don't have it together at all, walk into the congregation, the faith in Christ calls me to treat both of them consistently, to make no assumptions about their readiness, to make no assumptions about their faithfulness, to make no assumptions about how they should or they need to be treated, to lunge at them with the love of God the way Christ lunged at you, regardless of how you looked on the exterior. Let's take a look at verses 5 through 7. Verses 5 through 7 read as follows. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in this world, or poor in the world, to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man and, not, uh, and, 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 and are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? James is not challenging us to start treating rich people poorly, but he is pointing out the ridiculousness of their bias and favoritism. So what exactly does James want us to know through this, 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 this conversation here? What he wants us to know is not only does faith shape how we see people, but also faith frames how we value people. If you haven't noticed it yet through the seven messages that we've covered together, James is a serious student of the Beatitudes and Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Many of the things that he talks about, if you go back and read Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, you will see that they are allusions to it or they are extracts from it. And so if you look here, when he talks about are not the poor those who the Lord has chosen to be heirs of the kingdom and to receive promises, this is an allusion. This is a direct connect back to the Beatitudes that read this, that read this way in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Hear Jesus' words. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Pay careful attention to these groups. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Uh, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and and. and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. 
Did you notice that all nine of the groups who were considered to be blessed are essentially people who are under the boot of society? They're people who are functionally and effectively under the boot. The meek, the poor, the, those who are being persecuted. And so the Lord has an affectionate heart toward those who are under the boot of society because when you are reduced to your lowest common denominator, you get clarity on what really matters in life. And you begin to get clarity on who God is if you let your faith do the talking and not your flesh. We've talked about this. But here's what I believe that, that, that happens to our faith when it is a steadfast faith. Remember, we are being called to develop a steadfast faith. So a steadfast faith is, is something that will constantly challenge my value system. When I look at the Beatitudes and I see all these people who are under the boot, or if I look at Jesus' other words that challenge our value system, listen to this. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 20, 21, Jesus challenged those who were in front of him about building up treasure for themselves on earth versus in heaven. He says the treasure that you build up down here, well, well people can steal it or moth will come in and eat it up. But a treasure that you build for yourself in heaven through living righteously will not pass away. Anybody remember that faithful moment with the rich young ruler? Right? A challenge of the value system. Jesus walked him through the Ten Commandments, or at least the first five that were all about his relationship or, or his horizontal relationships. And what did he say about the Ten Commandments? Oh, I've done all of those from my youth up. And he says, guess what? Go sell your riches and follow me and let's just serve the poor. And all of a sudden, he was deeply broken. Why? Because even though he was highly compliant with the law of God, his heart still was not dialed into God's value system. Does that make sense? The rich young ruler was broken. He walked away with his head in the locks of his shoulders when he was told not to just keep the law, but now let the law galvanize itself in a faith in me. Follow me, sell your stuff, and serve the poor. And he walked away because that wasn't what he was prepared to do. And so the Lord has a different value system. He has a different value system that shows up in those who might be under the boot of society. He has a different value system that shows up differently than, than the world's bank account, as we should uh, build up treasure for ourselves in heaven. He has a value system that is different than the world's in, in how he reshapes and how our faith should be shaping our, our ambition. You know, while many of you might say, I would never treat anybody differently based on the way they walk into church, I'll tell you one little crucible in Atlanta that'll let you know about some of your biases. You know what it is? traffic. You ever been driving? Number maybe you're the, I'll tell you about my own experience. I remember, I'll never forget, I was driving a, uh, got a little black used Honda Civic. I was coming down 20, and I mean, I just feel like, man, every day, just somebody felt inclined to just cut me off. I mean, within inches, they were so close, I couldn't even see their license plate. I mean, just get in front of you, beep, beep, not let me over, all kind of stuff. And so one day, I upgraded my vehicle. And a part of my upgrade, nobody else got over on me. Didn't nobody try to take off on me at the traffic light. People, I mean, if I put my blinker, I didn't have to stick my head or arm out going, hey, hey, could you let me over? If I threw my blinker on, they moved back. And have we not also seen this of ourselves? I mean, maybe, you, maybe it's not that drastic in your heart, but if there's somebody trying to scoot over and they got like a Porsche, do we not feel a little bit different than the guy with the rusted out minivan? And it's got all of them, you know, it's got the little stick figures, you know, with like nine people next to it and, the, and, the, and one of them's got a soccer ball. I mean, why is it that our hearts feel different when we see the blinker of somebody trying to get over based on the vehicle that they drive? But does it not happen? Even, is that not almost the same as treating people differently who come in wearing a gold ring versus shabby clothes? Maybe we're not mistreating them in church, but are we making assessments and judgments about who's qualified to get over based on the cost of their vehicle in front of us? 
you don't do these things, you are holy people. <laughs> but it's amazing to see that work its way out. Here comes a guy in a truck. I'm going to slow it down. That's an F-150 with a four-inch lift. I'm going to let him in. But it's external criteria used to make practical life decisions. And it might not be classism, it might not be racism, but there is a little bit of something in there that's kind of informing us to make decisions differently. But guess what? That same person could be like in some 86 Regal the very next day and would get completely different treatment. Why? Based on what they're packaged in? Same person, same value, same urgency to get to work, same need to go pick up their kids. Same deadlines to make so they don't get an extra charge at daycare. Same person, same agenda, treated differently based on what they're rolling in. So church might not be the setting, but man, traffic is. So faith frames how we value other people. When I read the word of God in these passages that I just mentioned earlier, Matthew 2, 11 and following, Matthew 6, verses 19 and 20, or the story of the rich young ruler in Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 22, reading the word in faith will challenge my value system. But you know what? Living it will radically change my value system. That's why doing life in other people's shoes is so awesome and we can rejoice in it. That's why we should not hold the faith impartiality and we should lunge into God all the more when we find ourselves in different stations of life because God has given you a chance to try on new shoes. And once you're done trying on those new shoes, you and I are uniquely equipped to show a different kind of love with a greater degree of sincerity and authenticity that we weren't equipped to show before. And so... Reading it will challenge it, but living it will radically change it in how we value other people. Let's look at verses 8 through 11. It says here, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. You're doing well. But you show partiality. You are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable of it all. Again, referencing Jesus' words. For he, who had, for he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. For if you do not commit adultery but you do murder, have you not become a transgressor of the law? And so, yeah, thank you, Sister Henrietta. And so the, the, so the Bible informs us that our faith not only shapes our, how we see other people, that our faith not only frames how we value other people, but our faith will also state clearly and publicly our understanding of sanctification. I will ne I'll never forget, um, I'll never forget this. Uh, uh, we, we were, when it comes to sanctification, I was, uh, I was trying to share the gospel with a schoolmate back in high school, and uh, the conversation was something like, you know, just me just kind of sharing the love of God, work on the cross, and uh, the need for, for following him. And uh, the response that I got was, man, look, the only thing I do is cuss and have sex. I'm not a murderer. I'm not one of these other people out here. You can, like, save that and share that with someone else. Now, that sounds ridiculous to say out of the mouth. But that is fully reflective of the kind of graffiti that is in our hearts when we are people who live on certain biases. We look out from behind these eyes and we say, those who do that kind of stuff, that's a really bad person. I'm just a slightly fallen individual that occasionally needs to be picked up. 
And when we have this, this partial view of other people in contrast to ourselves, rather than a holistic view of ourselves in contrast to the Christ, we not only pick and choose who we view as being good people, but we also pick and choose what we think real sanctification looks like. And that's why our faith makes a clear statement of who or how we understand sanctification. Look at this. It says, if you really fulfill the royal law of Scripture, in verse 8 again, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And you're doing well if you do that. Well, here's one of the questions that we have to answer. What is love? Who is my neighbor? And how should I see myself if that's the kind of the standard that I should show love based on? Now, do you understand, do you understand the deficiency that we might have if we believe that truly rooting out bias and prejudice and classism in our life is just a function of getting more exposure and just having an open hand with all kinds of people? Do you understand the trap, the challenge that I could produce? Because if I don't know myself properly and love myself properly, but yet my self-love is how I'm supposed to extend love to others, how, how corrupt that could be, if I really don't know who I am? You see, the Bible says that love isn't just showing good feelings and good deeds, but the Bible shows us a perfect picture of love on the cross. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 tells us very clearly that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. So God, through the gospel, answers the question of what real love looks like. It doesn't look like quid pro quo. I'm doing good to you because you've been good and you qualify for it. Separate from the gospel, that is the kind of love that all of us operate out of. It is innate. It is natural. Even if you don't like to move in that way, I naturally have a bias toward people who treat me nicely. And so do you. I love the company of and would readily, readily put you on my Christmas gift, even ask you what you might be wanting if I feel great about how you have treated me in the past. So we do know that our hearts are tuned Separate from the gospel, our hearts are tuned to only treat others nicely who have treated us nicely. But the Bible says that God didn't just treat us nicely and gratuitously. It says that he loved us proactively while we were still sinners. And so it takes the gospel to radically redefine how we love ourselves and how we define love. Who then is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Is it the person who just has closest proximity to me? The Bible informs me that God defines his neighbor as being the whole world. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So God's neighbor is the, is the planet. That's my neighbor. Not those who I see the most and love the most and like the most and have the most in common with. God has nothing in common with us. He's holy and we're not. And so I should allow the gospel to inform us. So if I'm going to follow through on the golden rule, I have to first begin by answering the golden rules Q&A through the lens of the gospel. Who is, what is love? God defines it at the cross. Who is my neighbor? God defines it at the cross. How should I see myself? Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8. I am just a sinner saved by grace. I'm not somebody who has just a super high heavenly credit score and I qualify for God's love. I am a sinner. Now remember what James just walked us through. Whether I broke what I view to be the smallest and the lightest of laws, or whether I broke all of the laws, I am yet a transgressor of the whole law. And because I'm a transgressor of the whole law, I need all of God's mercy. So whether my, whether my, my, my shooting percentage is, 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 is 98% or whether it's 2%, I'm in equal need of God's mercy according to God's word.
And so real faith, steadfast faith, not only shapes how I see people, not only frames how I value people, it states my understanding of sanctification, but it also does something else. Faith also molds our view of mercy. Verses 12 and 13 give us this quick hit. It says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment without mercy to one who has shown no mercy, uh, mercy triumphs over judgment. And so our faith begins to really mold. If we have a consistent faith, it really begins to mold our view of mercy. Why? Because none of us are able to pick a particular biblical precept as our expertise. Well, you know, I'm not really good at, you know, telling the truth. But man, when it comes to giving, I'll beat anybody. You know, it's kind of the Robin Hood, you know, thing. It's like the, the drug dealer who decides to take care of his community, but in the process, he murders and he poisons. Right? Think about some of the themes that the world regularly bathes us in to make us believe that this quasi-righteousness or this, this partial uh, uh, righteousness, if you will, a partial personal righteousness is something to be applauded. And God says all of it is in desperate need of mercy. So none of us can pick and choose our specialization in a precept. None of us can look at ourselves in the perfect law of liberty and say that we ourselves are perfect. And all of us are in equal need of mercy. So here it is. Here's the final point. Our ability to show mercy increases with how well we know mercy. Our ability to show mercy continuously increases with how well we know mercy. And I am not acquainted with mercy. I don't know how much mercy I'm getting unless I'm constantly plugging my faith back into the Lord Jesus Christ and ruminating and marinating on his love. And I become acquainted with, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, oh Lord, I can't believe how much mercy I'm requiring. Here I am sinning again. Here I am needing forgiveness again, not on a variety of categories, but on the same category. Oh, my goodness. And when I see myself as being this recipient of God's jackpot, the mega millions of mercy, if you will, I then look at other people and say, that person needs mercy just like me. And whether that mercy is a manifestation of being treated well or not excusing sin, because God doesn't excuse sin. The Lord Jesus Christ looks squarely at our sin, understands its peril, understands how much it, it presses against the life. Jesus understands the great guilt that is caused by sin. One scholar said it this way, that the grace of God deals with our guilt, but mercy deals with our misery. Sin produces misery in our lives. Trials produce misery in our lives. There's a certain feeling where we feel so disconnected and isolated. And the Lord Jesus Christ wore those same shoes. And therefore, James, or the Holy Spirit through him, is perfectly just in telling us that when I am showing bias, that I need to back up for a moment and recognize that Jesus also wore that person's shoes. And that person doesn't just demand fair and equitable treatment from you. They need mercy from you. Show them mercy. Show them that, that, you, that you, you may not be able to intellectually articulate or even emotionally identify with their current station in life and what they're going through. But sin and disconnect from God brings about misery. Certain stations in life bring about deep misery in the life. But God addresses not only our guilt like some great attorney, but also our misery. He looks at our lives and he understands our frame and he knows that we are people that need to be encouraged, that need to be loved, that need to be consoled. What's one of the first things that, that comes into your mind when you encounter a great tragedy? 
your values are at risk. You not only ask why is this happening to me, but you begin to ask questions of like, God, what did I do that I don't qualify for the kind of goodness that I see the person on the other side of the pew getting? What did I do? Do I not qualify for your everlasting love and goodness? And that is the lie of the enemy because it's the wrong question. None of us qualify for God's goodness. He gives it beautifully, wonderfully, and graciously. And so when James says, do not hold your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, in partiality, he's making us aware of not just rich versus poor, black versus white, downtrodden versus, you know, higher up. But he says, every time you lock eyes with another human being, every time you see somebody in their station, recognize that you're seeing someone who is mutually, desperately needy of mercy, just like you, just like you. And all of this happens not because we hear great messages and we understand the ideas. It happens because we practice God's word and we allow our faith to grow in consistency and steadfastness. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come before you this morning. We thank you and we praise you for how you reacquaint us with our need for faith in you. And that there is no category of life that is exempt from the conversation of Christ. That there's no area in our life where, where we can say, well, that's not a Jesus issue. I just got to, you know, I just need to up my understanding of other people across the globe and increase in my compassion and, and, and here and there. Lord God, it is a faith issue and I thank you for revealing it to us. I pray, oh God, that you would search our hearts and show us where our faith is inconsistent and it's not balanced. And we've allowed some of our biases to live and shape the kind of people that we would share the gospel with. We've allowed our biases to shape uh, the kind of people who sin, who we regard in different ways and we don't want them around us, but yet we're okay with other types of sin. Show us, Lord God, where our, our, our lack of steadfastness has resulted, Lord God, in a lack of faithfulness in the gospel. And Lord God, as you show it to us, be merciful, open our eyes, drag us back to the text, and draw us, send us out into the world with a new commitment, Lord God, to show love and to show mercy and to live an unprejudiced and an unbiased life because we now have an unwavering faith in the Christ. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen.